this morning to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9. Last week, you will recall that we embarked on a new study that we have entitled, Follow Me, The Adventure of Discipleship. And you will remember that we we looked for a moment at the mission of Christ Fellowship Church. It's a very simple mission. It's one that I would encourage you to memorize, to, uh, to share, but more importantly, to take part in this mission. The mission of Christ Fellowship is to help people become fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, disciples of Jesus Christ. Author Trevin Wax captures the essence of the mission of Christ Fellowship. He says it this way. He says, missional fruitfulness comes from a heart gripped by God's greatness and enthralled with his grace. He says, we ought to be so mesmerized by the glory of Jesus Christ that we count it as nothing to lose our lives for the spread of his fame. I think those are wise words. Words that we need to remember and words that we need to assimilate into the fabric of our lives. Please remember that when we speak of discipleship, the word disciple in the New Testament simply means pupil. It means a learner, a lifelong learner, if you will. Discipleship, one writer says, means forsaking everything to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you are familiar with Tim Keller, who is a prolific writer in our generation. Keller says, in a missional church, all people need theological education to think Christianly about everything and to act with Christian distinctiveness. And so, at Christ Fellowship, our intention is this, that every Bible study, that every sermon, that every youth trip... That every gathering, that every dinner, that every class, all the way from two years old up to the most mature person here in our church family, that is those of you who are old, that we would be about making disciples. Everything we do asks the question, are we doing it in order to help people to become fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 9, the passage that you have before you, Jesus Christ unpacks the very essence of discipleship. I want you to read it with me. Verse 23, he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now last week, I introduced a a Latin phrase to you. I put this Latin phrase on the table for your consideration. I warned you that you don't need to memorize it. You just merely need to understand it. The Latin phrase was uh, sine qua non. What we're curious about, what we're interested in, is the, the sine qua non of discipleship. And that phrase describes something that is absolutely essential. You will remember, those of you that were here last week, that my aunt many years ago made a pumpkin pie for the boy that she was going to spend the afternoon with. And she put all the ingredients in the pie and cooked the pie and he ate the pie and she asked him, how's the pie? And he said, I've tasted better putty. 
And the reason she said that was that she forgot one ingredient, the sugar. So you could say this, that, that sugar is the sine qua non of pumpkin pie. If you leave the sugar out, you're going to have a great looking pie, but it's going to taste like putty. This phrase, sine qua non, can be translated as without which not. It means without something, something else would be impossible. What we see in Luke chapter 9 is that there are three essential ingredients of discipleship. We looked at the first one last week. If you leave any of the ingredients out of this discipleship pie, if you will, sorry for the crude analogy, if you leave any of the ingredients out that Jesus sets before us, you have a non-disciple. You have a pseudo-disciple. You have a false disciple. You, you might even say you have a false convert. Someone who is not yet truly a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what is the sine qua non of discipleship? Or in English, if you prefer, what is the very essence of discipleship when we boil it down? Look with me at verse 23 of Luke chapter 9. Jesus says the first ingredient of discipleship is that we deny ourselves. We looked at this last week. We referred to it as self-denial. What does it mean, especially in a culture that we live in, that is so self-absorbed and self-consumed? What does it mean to be a person of self-denial? First of all, it's important that we recognize, once again by way of review, that when Jesus says that we must deny ourselves, he sets a commandment on the table. This is an imperative, and I want to warn you in advance this morning that in this one verse, by the way, I need to say, especially after the Veritas class this morning, isn't the scripture so rich? Because in one verse, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, we have three commandments. That's a preview. These are not suggestions. These are not things that you do if you feel like it. These are three imperatives, three commandments, three non-negotiables that Jesus sets forth for anyone who would, would come after him and be his disciple. And so self-denial is the first commandment. And we ask this question, how do we do it? How do we become a person of self-denial? Well, we said that it involves, first of all, a radical reordering of our priorities. It means that things need to shift in our lives. Instead of being a self-seeker, our priorities are reorganized around the kingdom purposes of God. And I want to say that while some might see that as, as inherently negative, once you have embraced Jesus, once you have believed in Jesus and you become his, his disciple, his follower, and you reorient your life around his kingdom purposes, that's when life gets really, really, really exciting. Additionally, self-denial means that, that we must sacrifice. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, what Jesus says is that he must be preeminent. He must be numero uno. 
Jesus Christ is number one in our lives. And then finally, we saw that self-denial involves wholehearted obedience. It would be like this. If I came home with a dozen roses, and whenever I bring flowers for my wife, I always, I, I think I read it in the book somewhere, you hide them behind your back, right? You can always see the thing sticking out, right? So why do you, I have no idea who invented that, but I always hide it behind my back, and it would be as if I said to my wife, here's a dozen roses, and I love you with half a heart. Here's a dozen roses, you have two-thirds of my heart. Now, what do you think my wife would do? Those of you that know Jereen know that she's, she wouldn't like that. In fact, I don't know any woman that would like that. It wouldn't surprise me if you got a knuckle sandwich, right? Because a wife, what a wife expects from her husband is that he's all in, right? 100%, you have my whole heart. This is what Jesus is calling for in terms of discipleship. You must deny yourself. It's a reorder in every priorities. It involves radical sacrifice, and it involves wholehearted obedience. But Jesus indicates now that there are two other essential ingredients in authentic discipleship. Look again at verse 23. He's already told us that we must deny deny ourselves, but then he says there's a second ingredient. In order to come after him, in order to be his disciple, he says, you must take up your cross daily. I like to refer to this as a cross bearer. We must be cross bearers. I want to begin by asking this question. What does it mean? And it shouldn't shock anyone when I tell you that to be a cross bearer is a command. It's an imperative, just like we learned about self-denial. The Greek word for take up, to take up your cross, means a willingness to suffer unto death. It means that I'm ready and willing for self-denial and even ready for martyrdom. It means I'm ready to die for the lordship of Jesus Christ. This morning in Veritas, we re-examined the life of Martin Luther as we studied the, the, the amazing scriptures that we cherish here at Christ Fellowship. And we learned that in 1521, as he stood at the Diet of Worms, and he gave that, that wonderful speech that only lasted a few seconds, Here I stand, God help me, I can do no other, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe, so help me God. But he, in his mind, he had it transfixed in his mind that that may have been the last thing he ever said. He was certain that he was going to go to the stake. He was certain that he was going to be put to death by the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, he providentially escaped and made his way to the Wartburg Castle where he translated the Greek text into the the language of the common people in Germany, and God used him in a great and mighty way. Taking up our cross is something that has come into American, the the American vocabulary, if you will. You've heard it said something like this, that I'm taking up my cross, I'm putting up with my mother-in-law. Well, taking up your cross has nothing to do with putting up with your your mother-in-law or your in-laws. Taking up your cross does not mean that I eat broccoli instead of pizza. That has nothing to do with taking up my cross. It sounds pretty good. I actually like it. 
But it doesn't mean I'm taking up my cross. Taking up my cross doesn't mean that I, that I forfeit my favorite television program to help my neighbor. That has nothing to do with taking up my cross. Jesus says this in Matthew 10. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. When Jesus calls us to take up our cross, you see, he is inviting us. He's not only inviting us, he is commanding that we are completely surrendered to his purposes. Last week, we looked for a moment at the German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who was sent to the gallows eight days before Adolf Hitler committed suicide. Well, in this scheme, Adolf Hitler got his way as he stood as the judge and jury over the death of this godly German pastor. Bonhoeffer said these words before his death, obviously. He said, only when we have become completely oblivious of self are we ready to bear the cross for his sake. He went on to utter these words that in my humble estimation are probably the most remembered words that he ever penned. He said this, the cross is laid on every Christian When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. We understand that what it means to take up our cross for the Lord Jesus Christ means to be completely surrendered to him. You say, Lord Jesus, I would be willing to die a martyr's death if it came to that point. And so we have to ask, how do I do it? How do I do it? Well, several things are involved when we think about the nuts and bolts of what it means to take up our cross for the Lord Jesus Christ. First, it involves sacrifice. It involves sacrifice. Taking up our cross for the Lord Jesus Christ will demand sacrifice. That is to say, Jesus calls us to sacrifice our time. The Lord Jesus Christ calls us to sacrifice our resources. He calls us to sacrifice our money. And I might add that as, as Ken shared with, from the, the request of, of Galen, the amazing generosity at Christ Fellowship. That is something we can give great glory to God for. We have sacrificed together here in the household of faith. Jesus additionally calls us to sacrifice our preferences. Have you ever had to sacrifice your preference? Sometimes it's you have to sacrifice your, present, your, your preference when it comes to worship style. Sometimes you have to sacrifice your preference when it comes to giving up something that's important to you. But in short, Jesus calls upon each of us to sacrifice our very lives for his sake. Paul refers to this, if you want to turn with me, over in Romans chapter 12. It's a passage that I trust you know very well, but may take on a great deal of significance if we think about what it means to to take up our cross, which involves sacrifice. Paul the Apostle says in Romans 12, Verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. I want to take just a break, allow for a break in the action. I want to talk with our sound man upstairs. Are we, is our screen just, is it dead this morning? I'm kind of looking forward to the video at the end. Anyone know? My suspicion is it just died. So um, I had a, a video that I want to share at the end of the sermon. And so we'll, um, as I'm preaching, I'm asking myself, what am I going to do if the video doesn't work? I'm going to have to act it out. And how you're thinking, I don't want the video to work. I want to see that. You don't want to see that. To take up our cross for the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, involves sacrifice. Number two, it involves suffering. It involves suffering. Now, think with me, if you will, through the story of Job. You have Job who was a wealthy man. A man who was was very blessed with a, a wife and a large family. And what happened? In one sentence, we can say that God sovereignly allowed for God's whole family, except for a wife who said, curse God and die, to be taken from him. He was also removed of basically all of his worldly possessions. His, his, his livelihood, everything he had in his life was stripped from him. And his response is interesting in Job chapter 13. He says this, and he's referring to God. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Bonhoeffer helps us at this point. He says, suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. If we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ And have ceased to follow him. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, this is a a very significant matter. That's why we say this is at the, the very core of discipleship, the essence of discipleship. Taking our cross and following him not only involves sacrifice and suffering, it also involves persistence. Look again at verse 23. And don't miss the significance of Jesus' words when he says to take up his cross when? Daily. That is, it involves persistence. There's a qualifier, qualifier rather that Jesus places on this command, that you take up your cross daily. And so to become oblivious of self and bear the cross of Jesus becomes a daily reality that involves persistence. We have a phrase that matches the words of Jesus in American subculture. It goes like this. You've all heard it. No pain, no gain. That's really what's happening here is we we suffer for the sake of Jesus and it involves daily persistence. It will involve persistence to, to bear the cross when the world asks questions. When the world questions our motives and the world says, why do you give up your Sunday and go to church? Don't you know you're missing a good football game? It involves persistence when the world challenges us why we give of our our time and our talents and and our treasures and our resources. It involves persistence to bear the cross when the easy way out panders to the flesh. It takes persistence on those days that when we are tired. How many of you have ever gotten tired? 
Whoa, wow. You know, this is a church that doesn't respond very often. Man, wow, I hit the nerve. I hit the mother load. <laughs> Let me try it again. How many of you have ever gotten tired? Oh, yeah, amen, right? How many of you have ever felt like it's time to throw in the towel? I've had it. I have had it. Discipleship demands that we hang in there, that we are a people of persistence. There's another thing that this involves, taking up our cross. It involves blessing. Now, we've seen some hard words. We've seen that taking up our Christ involves sacrifice. It involves suffering. It involves persistence. Those are the things that we, we have to grind it out by the grace of God. But I want to conclude this section by having you see that taking up our cross for Jesus Christ involves blessing. Scripture speaks a great deal of the blessing that we shall share in the midst of adversity. In Matthew 5, verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised for those who love him. 1 Peter 1.13 or 1 Peter 3, verse 14, rather. But even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. That is to say, you will know the happiness of God. One writer says that discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of His grace. And what stood out to me when I read those words is the word joy. That as we suffer, as we, as we engage in these, these quote-unquote discipleship activities, that we, despite the suffering, despite the pain, despite the sacrifice, that we will know joy. Here's my big question this morning. Have you experienced that joy? As you walk with Jesus, some of you are just getting started in your journey of discipleship. Some of you have been walking the path of discipleship for many, many years, 30, 40, 50 years and beyond. Do you know the joy of discipleship, of Walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily. And finally, we see that there's a third essential ingredient of discipleship. Look at it with me in verse 23. Jesus says, you must follow me. What does it mean? We could probably all say it together. It is a command. Yes, it is an invitation. And this is difficult to understand because if I, if I said to Spence, I said, Spence, I want to invite you to my house for dinner. Jesus is essentially giving an invitation. But in this example, if I invite my friend to dinner, I'm not commanding that he come to dinner. In this particular incident, Jesus is saying, I invite you to come, but he also says, this is a command. You must be my follower. The Greek word for follow is actually found throughout the Gospels. And the word means to accompany. 
It means to literally be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show show you a few examples. In Matthew 8, verse 28, Jesus said, and by the way, I'm going to share just a few verses with you and remember that every time you hear the word follow, in all of the examples I'm going to put before you, they're all written, there we go, they're all written in the imperative mood. All of them. None of these are suggestions. And so Jesus says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's a command. In Matthew 9, 9, Jesus passed on from there and he called a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew, this IRS man, right? He rose and followed Jesus. Matthew, or Luke chapter 9, verse 59. To another, he said, follow me, a command. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. We'll come back to that later in our series. In Matthew nineteen twenty one, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess. Give to the poor and you will have a treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. All of these are commands. And so we ask, what does it mean? What does this command mean to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? There are several implications of what it means to follow Jesus. First, followers of Jesus obey Jesus. Followers of Jesus obey Jesus. In Matthew 4, verse 20, we have this group of men, and the Lord Jesus Christ challenges these men. These are all blue-collar workers, right? He goes to the blue-collar workers, and he says, to follow me, and here's what the passage says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. We live in a culture that is actually in some ways just like this first century culture. Hey, I've got things to do, Jesus. Uh, I've got an appointment, Jesus. I'll, I'll catch you on the flip side, right? There's things to do in my life. I'll see you later. I'll catch you later. Here are these men who became followers, who became disciples of Jesus. The Bible says immediately they left their nets to follow him. It's like this. You remember that episode in John chapter 9. You remember when Jesus' friend fell ill and died? So Lazarus is in the grave. The Lord Jesus Christ gets word of it. His friends bring him to the tomb. And what does Jesus say? Lazarus, by the way, the King James is great. He stinketh. He stinketh. We would say he reeks. What does Jesus say? Lazarus, come forth. Is that a suggestion? That's a command. And what happened? Lazarus is raised from the dead. An absolutely astounding miracle. And so like Jesus' command to to come out of the grave, so do you and I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes to us and says, come to me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. It's as if he is saying to Lazarus, come forth. And we come and follow Jesus. Practical examples. When God leads us in a particular direction, what do we do? As disciples of Jesus, we we obey him. But pastor, you don't understand. It's going to take time. When Jesus calls us to follow him, we obey him. But pastor, you don't understand. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take money. It's going to take devotion. When Jesus calls us to follow him, 
Our responsibility is to obey him. Another way that obedience makes itself a reality in our Christian lives is when God prompts us to reconcile a relationship. Even when it's not comfortable, we obey Jesus. When God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, prompts us to apologize to someone, what do we do? We apologize to that person. We obey Jesus. When God convicts us of a, of a sinful attitude or action, we, we turn from our sins, do we not? And we obey. And when you've experienced that, if you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have experienced that. When you obey, you receive the, the joy of blessing. You receive the joy of blessing. Obedience, as we shall see later in our series, is a, a preeminent mark, a defining mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus not only obey him, followers of Jesus turn from their sin. This is what we would refer to as biblical repentance. In John chapter 8, you will recall the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Here's a woman who, whose sin was ex- exposed to everyone in this little village, including God. And when her sin was exposed, you see, she became a candidate for the grace of God. She turned from her sin and she trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've seen that disciples obey Jesus. And one of the first signs of obedience is a willingness to repent. The Puritan Thomas Watson says it like this, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Jesus asked the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, Where are your accusers? And she looked around and they were gone. And he said, Go now. And leave your life of sin. Followers of Jesus turn from their sin. They repent. Third, followers of Jesus trust the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means to follow Jesus. In Acts 16, the Bible tells us, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In Romans 4, 5, And the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So you're here this morning and say, I, I'm, I've come burdened with a load of sin. I, I, I need relief. I need help. I need forgiveness. What's the answer? The Bible says this, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Stop working. Where's AJ? AJ? AJ and Shalan and I have talked, I don't know how many times it's come up in our conversations, but AJ has, has uh, it's come up several times. You remember the latter sermon, right? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, they're both nodding. Where I, I had Lenny bring the ladder in, and I'm afraid of heights, right? And I climbed the ladder. It's works-based righteousness, right? And I spent, I don't know, how was it like half the sermon at the top of the ladder? It's the scariest sermon I've ever preached, Right? That's what happens as people who live in this world. We, we, are load, we are loaded down by a burden of guilt. Our sin has brought us to the brink of despair. And so what do we do? Oh, if I, if I give more money, if I serve more in church, 
If I go to Wednesday night prayer meeting, if I, if I commit to going to church every single week, I'm never going to miss, God will somehow be happy with me. That's called works-based righteousness. It's climbing the ladder to merit the favor of Almighty God. And Isaiah chapter 64 says that those acts of works-based righteousness are like filthy rags in his sight. And so you, you say, I feel worse. How do I get relief? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Once again, Romans 4. Listen with fresh ears. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul says that a different way in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is to say, since we have been acquitted by a holy God, how? By climbing the ladder? No, by faith and faith alone. Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, followers of Jesus submit to him. We refer to this as biblical submission. In James 4, verses 6 and 7, James says, But he gives more grace, therefore God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This morning, we need to remember if, if we desire to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we obey him, we, we turn from our sin, we repent, we believe in him and his, his work on the cross for our sins, but we also submit to him. Finally, followers of Jesus Christ commit themselves to him. Look with me in Luke chapter 9, and if time allows, later in the series, we may come back to this for a a more comprehensive treatment. But look at Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, that is Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Verse 60, And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet to another, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That is to say, followers of Jesus Christ make this commitment to follow him. We obey him. We submit to him. We believe in him. We turn from our sins. We commit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I hope by this point, as you look at verse 23, you say, I, I think I've got it. By George, I think I've got it. I know the sine qua non. I know the essence of discipleship. You could walk out this morning and know off the top of your head. It's I deny myself. I take up my cross daily and I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's where it gets interesting. These three critical commands are commands that we don't have the desire to obey, the inclination to obey, or the wherewithal to obey. Apart from grace, you and I simply cannot obey these commands. It is grace 
that enables us to deny ourselves. It is grace that enables us to take up our cross daily. And it is grace that enables us to follow Jesus Christ. And here's where it gets really exciting. Grace not only enables us to obey Jesus, grace empowers us to believe Jesus. If you remember nothing else today, remember this, that apart from grace, I can't do it. Apart from grace, I am doomed. But as I, as I cling to God's grace, as I cling to sovereign grace, he will enable me and empower me to deny myself, take up my daily cross, and follow Jesus. Now, in a moment, and I'm, I'm banking on the fact, we're good, Jordan, we're good. Oh, you did not want to see that little skit. None of you wanted to see it. In a moment, I want to introduce to you, by way of video, to, to two examples of disciples. There are some of you who will be familiar with the story. And even if you've seen it, if you're like me, a hundred times, it will bring you to the point of tears. If it's the first time you've ever seen it, um, we should have seatbelts in the pews. Brace yourself. Strap on that seatbelt. It is, this is... In my estimation, absolutely incredible. I want to introduce two disciples who are men who have chosen to deny themselves, to take up their daily cross, and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. These are two radically different men. One of them is much older. One of them is a bit younger. One of them has dark skin. One of them has light skin. One of them is from Ecuador. The other is from America. And this is a radical demonstration of biblical discipleship. Let me give you the background to the story before we play the video. On Sunday afternoon, and some of you um, will remember this. In 1956, on January 8th, about 3 p.m., Five missionaries were martyred. They were speared to death in the jungles of Ecuador. Their names, Jim Elliott, Peter Fleming, Ed McCauley, Roger Udarian, and the final man's name was Nate Saint. I want you to think for a moment about this gentleman by the name of Nate Saint because he had a little boy. He was just a small child, and his name was Steve And he got the word that his father had been murdered by the Waldani tribe. As we begin the video here in just a moment, I want you to meet Nate Saint's son, who is now an older gentleman. And Steve stands, Steve Saint stands alongside the man who speared his father back in 1958. The man who speared his father, his name is Menke, is now a disciple of Jesus Christ. You see, after that murder, after that brutal execution in 1958, when the dust settled, some of the family members who survived, two women, went back to the tribe. And they, they continued to teach the gospel to this group of people. And Minke came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's no confusion. You'll hear Steve Saint refer to this older gentleman as grandfather. He ha- refers to the man who stuck a spear through his father and killed him as 
grandfather. Take a minute and watch it. The man who now is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, a former murderer. He has denied himself and takes up his cross daily, and he follows Jesus. It goes without saying that Steve Saint is also a disciple. He has denied himself. He takes his cross up daily, and he follows the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to say just something about Steve Saint. He not only lost his father when he was a little boy, later when he got married and had children, he was sitting in a hotel room, and I've heard him share this story, with his college-age daughter, and his college-age daughter said that her she'd been having headaches and was really struggling, and not too many minutes later, she um, collapsed and had a brain aneurysm and died. Later in his life, Steve Saint, who is also a missionary, he was in a very serious uh, accident that almost killed him, that it left him um, severely handicapped. And throughout all those episodes, I have, I have followed him, and I have listened to him, and I have watched him, and he continues to trust Jesus. He continues to obey his Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen Curtis Chapman sings, My Redeemer is faithful and true. And that one who is faithful and true, he's calling you and I to be his disciples, to deny ourselves, to take up our daily cross and follow him. One of the other martyred missionaries, Jim Elliott, who was speared to death, wrote a sentence in his journal when he was a student at Wheaton College. Many of you have heard it. It has become a very famous sentence, words that he never dreamed would go on to live in the years ahead after he, after he was brutally killed. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This morning, I hope you're hearing from this pulpit that there is an unwavering, unshakable joy that comes as we commit ourselves to walking with Jesus Christ. And so I would ask, are you a disciple? Are you willing to deny yourself and take up your daily cross and follow him? Are you prepared to do that for the mission that we are called on as Christ fellowship members and also as individual Christians is to be disciples who are gripped by the promises of God. Disciples who are enthralled by God's grace That means that we're more excited about the gospel than the game. That means we're more excited about the gospel than what's happening in contemporary culture. We are disciples who are mesmerized by God's glory. And anyone who has been so radically affected by the grace of God will count it a privilege to spread the fame of his name. Let's pray together. Father, you've made uh, the demands of discipleship very clear. Your Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, spelled it out for us. He helped us to understand the essence of discipleship. And somewhere along the way, it seems like the portrait of this disciple has become clouded, has become foggy through our American culture, has has, uh, made it difficult to understand what a true disciple is. 
we recognize this morning that the essence of discipleship is self-denial and daily cross-bearing and following the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that this is an act that will require sacrifice, an act that will require devotion and commitment and obedience and submission and repentance. We also understand that coming to Jesus is free of, free of cost, that there's nothing to pay, that the price has already been paid at Calvary's cross. And so, I God, I pray, God, I pray that you would do a, a deep work of grace today, first in the hearts of those who are already your disciples. Perhaps recommitments need to take place. Perhaps a, a prayer of repentance needs, needs to take place. Perhaps there is a relationship that needs to be uh, rekindled. I pray that you would be doing that today by your spirit. And then for those who are here this morning who have never come to the point of true biblical discipleship, may today be the day of salvation. If you're here today and you have never uh, surrendered to Jesus, would you cry out to him and admit that you are indeed a sinner, that you have violated his holy law? And that today you recognize that uh, there are some demands before you, namely self-denial, taking up a, a daily cross, and following Jesus. Cry out to him and not only admit that you're a sinner, but ask that he would wipe all of your sins away because of his completed work on the cross for you. God, thank you for sending Jesus to die on that wooden cross and raising him from the dead on the third day. Thank you for all that you accomplished for your glory and on my behalf. Today, I, I make this radical decision that will change everything to be your disciple, to serve in your kingdom, to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn to him, to turn from my sins so that I might be saved. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.